on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, episode 398, Christopher Shaberg on Pedagogy of the Depressed. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Christopher Shaberg is Dorothy Harold Brown Distinguished Professor of English at Loyola University, New Orleans, and the author of seven books ranging across literary studies, air travel, and the environmental humanities. Christopher Shaberg, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me. You and I have a connection with what you call Satsuma Mandarins, but I grew up calling Satsuma Tangerines, or maybe they're even two different things, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your connection with this fruit and why it is important to your teaching. Well, I first became familiar with Satsumas in when I lived in Davis, California, and I remember a friend bringing them over to my house and sort of, you know, kind of recognizing them. They were smaller than oranges, but they weren't exactly what I would have known as tangerines growing up. And the other thing, they were kind of a peculiar color. They were more greenish. I was like, are these really ripe? It's like, just try them. So we ate them and they were delicious. And then I didn't realize that they grew so much down here in uh, Louisiana. And when I moved here for my job in 2009, I was delighted to find big bags of Satsumas when they were in season. And one time, just randomly, I took a bag to my class and passed it around in the morning. And some of my students were just excited to have free fruit. And other students were like, wait, what are these green things? Because they're often ripe when they're still green, not orange. So at first, it was just kind of a cute moment of familiarizing students in New Orleans who weren't from here with a local fruit. Uh, But then it became something I started to do regularly, just bringing satsumas in or sometimes other fruits or vegetables. This is all pre-pandemic, of course. So uh, they just became a kind of way to start the conversation and give everyone a little treat before class. The variety that I'm familiar with are kind of wrinkly. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there must be different kinds, but very easy to peel. The peel almost um, just comes right off. And yeah, but I do find that at least I live in Southern California and they do tend to be pretty unique. I don't see them often in stores here and my family has trees. I, we have a tree. It just doesn't produce any fruit. So when, one of these days it might, or we'll actually get another one and, and try, try again. But yeah, the, um, the other thing that you talk about is how it acknowledges a reality for many of our students in a symbolic way. Would you talk a little bit about how you find that it does that? Yeah. And it's both symbolic and very real material, which is just food scarcity. The fact that a lot of students are, actually hungry. And, and because, you know, they either just because they didn't get to eat breakfast because they were running from a job to school or because they've had to budget their funds and they, they have to get one meal today. And so I found that just bringing some fruit was, was a way to acknowledge that reality that I think often just goes um, unacknowledged. In an episode a couple of months ago, a group of 
of colleagues shared with me what they started to call pandemic dirty words. And I'm sure you've heard some of these, Christopher. You've got the resilience, you've got silver linings, you've got the new normal. And as I have come across your uh, stories, I think maybe it's not too much of an extension to say that you might have a set of, or at least one really profound pandemic dirty moves as in like um, things, maybe maybe the timing wasn't so great on. What What is one move that you have seen happen that maybe the timing wasn't the best to try to do something like this during a pandemic? Well, um, one move that continues to gall me was um, my university decided in the summer of the first summer of the pandemic, 2020, to switch learning management system. So we switched from Blackboard to Canvas. And this was something that had been in the works for a while, but choosing that summer when everyone was, was A, reeling from you know, an interrupted semester and B, trying to recover and then C, trying to figure out what class was even gonna look like in the fall, using that summer as the chance to completely change how we delivered classes online or, or created a, a space for resources for classes seemed completely bananas to me. And then to do it and not even compensate people to do it. I, I recalled during that time when I worked for an airline many, many years ago, and when we were trained to use the computer program to you know, book people's tickets and make changes and check people in, they sent the new employees to a training facility in Seattle for two weeks and paid us to get trained and put us up in a nice hotel and fed us. And then we would come back after two weeks and we were trained. And I thought, Wow, we, we could have done that. I mean, probably should have done that, especially during a pandemic. Okay, maybe we maybe it would have been hard to fly that summer, but you know what I mean. We could have done something in a more humanist uh, vein. So yeah, that was one move. Um, but then there were a lot of other small moves, like even this 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 seemed like an act of generosity to give students the option to take a pass fail instead of a, a letter grade. But it became this logistical nightmare, and it just made everyone uncertain about what they should do and how to do it, instructors and students alike. And it, it, in my mind, it would have been easier to just sort of do something more, even more generous. Like, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know, uh, message in a different way to, to faculty to just be more generous with grades that semester, that, rather than create all these new obstacles and loopholes that instructors and students had to find their way through. Those would be two pandemic dirty moves that I saw. Yeah, I, I don't know if you are on... I shouldn't, I shouldn't say I don't know. I just recently followed you on Twitter. So of course you're there. I don't know how much you're there because it was a recent, I recently came across your work and so recently started following you, but there's that lovely satirical account called ass deans as in associate deans abbreviated in a lovely yeah. way. And some of the moves that they explain there, so many of us are convinced like, wait, is this actually someone undercover at my particular institution? Because this just seems yeah. uh, past the point of parody in some cases. Yes. I know it's so hard. I've, I've had some really wonderful colleagues get promoted to become the associate dean. And it's always like, oh, I really hope you do a great job there. But then you're just always worried what's going to happen. Plus, now they're out of the classroom, which is where they were so valued and so good. But for many professors, that's like the only way to promotion or, or um, you know, a salary increase. So it's but then, yes, there's the whole the whole parody of associate deans, which is often very close, too close to the truth. Yeah, a person I've really admired her work, Robin DeRosa. I met her first at an open education conference, and she's been on the podcast a few times now and really admire her. I sort of always like to ascribe it to her as to why I ever took on that dean title. <laughs> 
and I sort of don't feel like one in the sense of, but I'm the, I'm the good kind that that um, helps facilitate learning opportunities for our faculty right. and the library and student success. <laughs> but yeah. but yeah, I, I'm, I do appreciate her challenge though all those years back too. If we want to be sort of part of you know creating change in our organizations, she was encouraging us. It'd be interesting to ask her right now. <laughs> like, does she still feel that way? <laughs> After yeah. all that, that was so many years ago where she was uh, doing some writing about that idea. Yeah. One of the things that uh, some of my colleagues and I have thought about what it would be like if all of our um, leaders and administrators taught just one class a year, just to keep a foot or even a toe in the classroom, because we have some um, really wonderful leaders who unfortunately haven't been in the classroom in so long. And, and you, you, you start to feel that, that disconnect more and more. And we've proposed this over the years and it's, it's usually just a rebuffed or, and I, I get it. I mean, I'm sure that, that the jobs of leadership are incredibly time consuming, but it, it, it does feel like there should be a way to, to mitigate that disconnect that can occur between leadership and faculty because, and it's, it's just that, that being in the classroom is such a profoundly different experience, especially during the last couple of years. Yeah, well, you gave that example of the pass-fail and and those kinds of things. And I know for myself, who I've insisted that that's part of my contract ever since I agreed to serve in this capacity, teaching not one class per year, but one per semester. And just being in the same rhythm of the year and, and experiencing some of the challenges, I don't pretend that it's the same. One class is very different than in my institution. They had us teaching an extra class. And, and I mean, that's, that was not necessarily a decision that well was always, um, I think, appreciated in terms of what that actually meant during a pandemic to have that, have that, although I know these were really challenging um, fiscal realities to, to try to navigate for sure. Yeah. But I do think that really, if this is the purpose and the mission of our institutions, what a difference it can make when we're just in it and we're, we're a part of that. Yep. Yeah, just talking to students once or twice a week. Uh, it's so important in that in that role, you know, as as an instructor. Yeah. One of the things I recognize about my own identity and the way that I was socialized is that I, I know that I it was very much on an individualistic kind of cultural thing. And you've written about depression, yes, as something that happens to individuals, but also something that happens, as you say, a state of things or an atmosphere. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that distinction between the individual experience of depression and the more collective way that you're trying to communicate about depression? Yeah, I think I was, I've been trying to go about this from, from two directions in my own life. And, and this is where the, the book kind of came out of is on the one hand, like feeling it myself, like just the, the, the various, you know, heavy, heavy weights that involved the job. And then going up to campus and running into my colleagues and students and feeling it in a different way, feeling it in a way that we were all sharing this experience, even if we were all experiencing it differently and uniquely on our own, but just the state of, of austerity and a state of constant new stresses and anxieties. And again, this is even before the pandemic that I was really tuning into this, but then also seeing it, how it plays out for my students. Again, both individually, what they would bring into class or into office hours, but then also when I'd have them as a group and to see them sharing that experience. So what I've been interested in is thinking about depression as this simultaneously individualized and shared phenomenon that's also taking place kind of in these different sites around the university. I'd like to read a little bit from your book. 
the pedagogy of the depressed, the depression is not so much an individual experience, not located, at least not solely in the depressed subject. It's a state of things. It's a depressed atmosphere, a dispersed feeling of dread and weariness that has as much to do with cultural forces and planetary circumstances as it has to do with the intense feeling of solitary helplessness. I shared with a number of friends and colleagues about reading your book. It's pretty much the perfect title for it. How, how, how quick did you come across that title? Um, and Or was this something that took a while to, to find a name for what you wanted to write and collecting your thoughts? I came, I, I sort of stumbled on the title one night when I was thinking about different, different things I was writing about. And I remember just emailing my editor and saying, hey, do, do you have a, I mean, hasn't someone proposed a book called Pedagogy of the Depressed? And my publisher, just by coincidence, is the publisher of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is a, a quite famous book of educational philosophy. And my editor said, no. And I sort of sketched out what I was thinking. And he said, well, let's do it. I, there, I, I did some, you know, I poked around. There have been some very, very smart articles and essays that have used that title. But usually it's about a, a fairly narrow set of, of concerns. And I wanted to use it more atmospherically to talk about something that I think a lot of people at different institutions, at different levels were feeling and just give a kind of snapshot of how I've felt it. So one, once the title was there, it really motivated the writing and, and the assembling of the different chapters. You show such great regard for learners that you join in community together. One of the things you don't do is call students kids. And I'd like to read a paragraph and then invite you to respond more. When a, this is quoting you. One of my biggest pet peeves is hearing colleagues refer to our students as kids. They're not. They're younger than us, sure. But they still are adults who can go to war operate giant metal boxes on wheels, make all sorts of weighty decisions, acquire disciplinary knowledge and expertise for work and work for pay. And would you talk a little bit about why you avoid calling students kids and, and some of the reasons that you really resist that and, and what you see coming out of why other colleagues may, may make that choice? Yeah, I, I probably should have added to that list. They can also accumulate debt because that's another important point that I think establishes this. You know, it's always a, a battle. I wonder if I should even pick or fight. I, I, I was in a uh, committee meeting recently where we're trying to kind of revamp and reimagine our first year experience at my university, um, which is something I, I really believe in, the, a holistic first year experience at a liberal arts institution. Um, but I noticed in that meeting, a lot of people were calling the first year students kids. And I just sort of had to bite my tongue. And because I was like, okay, in this context, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight this, but I just noted it again and again. And I thought about how the rhetoric of, of calling our students, our first year students, kids was working at cross purposes with what we were trying to do, which was trying to figure out how to sort of initiate them and invite them and support them into this, into this experience of college learning. What we really needed to do was be, be, meeting them as adults, as adult learners, even if they were 18 or not yet 18 in some cases. But to refer to them as kids, and if we have that mindset, we were immediately doing them a disservice, which is that we weren't, we weren't sort of seeing their potential as adult learners from the get-go. And so that was one specific case where I just felt like the rhetoric of kids was 
was doing us a, a disservice. But I didn't say anything about it there. But this was just the first of five meetings. And I, I'm, I most certainly will bring it up at some point because I feel like it's a correction that we need to make linguistically or discursively that will also change the way we think about the structures that we're imagining for our first year students. I was talking with our kids. Our kids as of this moment are seven and nine. And I say as of this moment, because my goodness, do they grow fast. <laughs> but, but we were talking the other day about, I said a word and I didn't love the word. I, I can't even recall what it was, but I was, I was explaining to them that, you know, when I was growing up, this is what we called this thing. And, oh, I know, actually, I know exactly what it was. I'm sort of embarrassed to admit it, but I've admitted a lot on this podcast. I can do this. I was making a joke with them and I said, ladies and gentlemen. And then I said, oh, gosh, I've been really trying to retrain my brain. Um, do you know why I would try to retrain my brain to use a different word? And they didn't quite get it at first. And then I said, some people might get left out. And that was enough of a clue for them to talk about that. But they started to say other words. That, that, that they recognize as, the, the, and I don't know where they got it from. I know in our, in our household, we're trying to rename certain rooms in our house because we didn't realize the historic nature of some of those things that we just grew up with and hadn't thought about. But the reason I bring that story up is just when you enter into a space where anyone could at any moment surprise you with what they bring in, that that. I mean, I'm thinking you're seven and nine. How are you already recognizing about so socialization and word choice and why that matters? I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. But if you don't show up respecting the people that are engaging in those conversations, then you're not really going to be able to experience what I find to be the greatest thing about teaching. Yeah, I, you're you're so right. And it also makes me think that the other reason I don't like referring to college students as kids is because it also does a disservice to kids. I mean, kids are, are their own amazing, brilliant little vessels, right? And, and so when we use that term sloppily and with this kind of reckless elasticity, we're not really doing justice to either children or the adults that they're becoming when they go to college. So yeah, yeah, that's, that, I guess one of the other things I, I, one of my colleagues and I have joked that, okay, if we're going to call them kids, our students, kids, let's be kids with them. Let's be playful with them. Let's learn with them. But that's, you know, that would be another approach that I'd be okay with. But a lot of faculty are, would, not like, would not take that very seriously or like that thought because it would disrupt the hierarchy. But either way, I think it's about disrupting the hierarchy between kids and adults or, you know, the people in authority and the people who are subjects. And so that's, I think, another reason why kids uh, remains problematic to me for college. Another tension that you have written so eloquently about is what happens when our students or when we click and who benefits from those clicks. And you write on the computer, the reality is we're producing value with each click, each keystroke, and every swipe of the thumb. Many have felt the time warp of internet browsing that sudden awareness, which I have done, side note, of how did I end up watching YouTube videos of cats and sitting through Geico ads between clips? In other words, what passes as saving time or creating more flexible work or learning space is really about wasting time while producing value, but value that goes somewhere else. What would you share with us about tech companies' profits and how they relate to us pushing buttons? 
Well, one of the ways I saw this creeping in again over that first pandemic summer was when we were switching to camp from Blackboard to Canvas and the faculty and students were encouraged to just download the app and then you can do it all on your phone. And I found myself thinking, okay, on the one hand, it's just in increasing accessibility and making everything more convenient. On the other hand, it's just further naturalizing these habits of clicking and just doing feeling that, that fantasy of feeling like we can do everything on our phones, which I don't think is true about learning. And I don't think it's true about a lot of things in life. So one of the, one of the texts that we read, which is Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. We read that this semester. And at one point I had my students leave their phones in our, in our class space. And then we all walked a little ways away and just sat for 20 minutes and just observed and thought. And it sounds so simple, but just being away from that clicking device for 20 minutes and tuning into the world or even just tuning into their thoughts was so profound for my students. And I think it helped them just that 20 minute break from the incessant clicking was a, a, a kind of epiphany moment for a lot of students that, wow, how much time I'm spending on, on my, my device and that time is being is always monetized. That time is go is is feeding, um, you know, the, the the technology companies and the the service providers, and it is going elsewhere. It is not. It is generally not just resulting in your own value. Yeah, I can recall the. I shall say um, hubbub, I think is the technical word for it, when Instructure, the company that makes the Canvas learning management system, was going to wrap around their profits to be able to sell aggregated data about student clicks and that becoming part of their financial wealth as a company didn't go over really well. And I believe that they have backed away from that significantly, but not, not without breaking a lot of trust for, wait a second, what is this tool for? And to, uh, who is it designed to benefit? Yeah, I even thought about it in a really pragmatic sense with my students that when, when we're asking them to download the Canvas app and use their phones to access their, their school materials, our school is not paying for those phones or the bandwidth or any of the, the, the service for, for that. I mean, that, that, that falls on the students. And that, that is, it's, that's material for a lot of our students. It's, it, not everyone has infinite resources for, you know, for, for constant new upgrades to their phones or, or more bandwidth. And so even in that sense, I feel like it's just important to note that these are not value neutral uh, objects or technologies. One of the ways you have found, despite these, of course, complexities, but you have found ways to connect is through collaborative writing. Would you describe how you have used a shared document to create some shared conversations in your class? Let's see, several years before the pandemic, I, I realized I was, I was tired of updating my syllabi and printing out new ones and bringing them to class or even updating them to uploading them to Blackboard or whatever. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to start a Google Doc and we'll just have a live, a living syllabus. And so I would have a place where the students could all go and they could see it as it would change throughout the semester. And then a year or two later, I said, wait, what if I just invite all my students to be editors on it? And then we can all kind of make it together. And then after that, I started realizing, wait, why aren't we just writing together on here when we would have a prompt? We don't have to go somewhere else and do a, a, a very clunky discussion board, we can just do it right here on this amazing, simple tool, the Google Doc. And so gradually, the Google Google Doc has just become this go-to collaborative writing space for me and my students. And 
if we have an idea together that we want to work on, we do it on a Google Doc. And the practical goal is that by the end of the semester, students will be really good at using Google Docs collaboratively, not just as a replacement for Microsoft Word, but as a collaborative space for thinking out loud, editing, working with each other's ideas. And um, it's been really thrilling to see some of the pieces we've written together be revised and edited and published in places. So it's been a way for me to see, to, to help the students experience a kind of full circle of of, of brainstorming and free writing and, and revising and editing and publishing. And it's a kind of simple form too, which I like. You caution us though, that this experience, we're not going to go into it and have, <laughs> okay, here we are. Everything's working perfectly. You, you use the word messy. Could you talk a little bit about this messiness? Cause I think it's important if we're ever going to try to start to adopt some of these practices to recognize not only might you, but I think it wouldn't go so far as to say you absolutely will encounter messiness. Would you talk about yeah. maybe on a practical standpoint, what that messiness look, has looked like specifically for you so we might know what we might encounter? Yeah. I mean, often when I start um, my students writing on a Google Doc together, and sometimes we'll do this live, like we'll have it in a classroom and projected on the screen and we'll be all writing together. That's probably the most potentially awkward. But even if we're learning remotely, like we were doing at the beginning of the pandemic, there would often be a moment where I would, we would all meet there on the Google Doc at our class time. So it was synchronous. And I would write a couple questions for the day to get to kind of seed the discussion. And then there's that initial uh, hesitation, who's going to write first. And then our, people are going to see me putting letters and words down and creating sentences, and they might sound really dumb. And it happens very slowly and then fits and starts. And sometimes you'll see a student try to type out a whole sentence and then delete it all. And then, but then, but then within a few days or weeks, you'll see how students start to sort of urge each other on or say, oh, I really like that point. I, I wanted, that relates to what I wanted to say. And, and you're having this kind of unraveling, but cumulative conversation about whatever you've read for that day. Uh, or sometimes I'll even just use an image or a short text and I'll paste it there first. And then we're talking about it together. But it's, it's really about, giving the space and time for all the initial awkwardness and kind of finding the class's unique chemistry and really being patient because the temptation is to like, to be like, Oh, let's just move to something else. Let's try something that'll be more productive, more easy to just see that we've done something. But I mean, this is why I love 75 minute classes because to see that how you can go from total white space and then chaos to something coherent and organized in 75 minutes is incredible and really fun to, to see as the instructor, but also I think really gratifying for the students to see what you can do together in a class of even up to 25 students. And by the end, like everyone will have said one thing or two things and built on each other's points. I love hearing about the practical ways in which our values get to get lived out in our teaching and in learning. So you talked about that you would put a couple of of questions there as prompts, or you might put an image. And then you talked about how, what you described sort of sounded like creating some norms as a class, but you're not establishing them. You're, they're sort of coming out 
emerging from this initial awkwardness of who's going to go. <laughs> you were sort of reminding me of that junior high dance thing of who's going to ask who to dance kind of <laughs> kind of thing, you know, and I find this a lot with colleagues too. In fact, I would say, I, I don't know that I've really had a tremendous amount of success if someone is not accustomed to writing in more social ways, more collaborative ways, there tends to be sort of a not willing to go through the messy part, the awkward part. And so we, we it sort of creates this divide that I wish wasn't there versus other colleagues completely comfortable, just, you know, go right in and everybody, we've been doing some experimentation. We did, we did this great uh, two truths and a lie, which is not necessarily my favorite activity to do, but they had a template in this mind, mind map sort of making software that we wanted to test out together. So I was like, rather than make something myself, I was like, okay. But it, it really turned out to be such a fun activity. We learned so so many random things about each other. It was delightful. But there were some of us that that was very comfortable. Go in, put your things in, and then add your votes to others. And then there were others that that really sort of, this was not a comfortable way of engaging. But um, I think I think it's worth pressing on the messiness, though, I guess would, would be what I would say. When it's over, the class ends. You, you mentioned having, um, in, in your book, you mentioned having, I think, sometimes up to 50,000 words that's been produced. Does anything happen with that? Well, often there's at least one or two pieces that we do something with. Like there will be, okay, one, I'll give an example. For instance, we read Ross Gay's book uh, called The Book of Delights, yeah. which is a, a, a year catalog of different things that delighted him. And he's writing as a, as a, as a observing poet, but these are sort of pro, he calls them SAS. So we read these and then the students would like, let's try it. Let's all do a hundred word delight. And we do that. And actually, we'd been we'd also been reading a book by Lauren Berlant and Kathleen Stewart called The Hundreds, which came out around the same time. And that book is a book written in little chunks of 100 words. And they were very, very rigorous about that. And so we kind of we kind of jammed these two things together. And we said, let's write delights in 100. So we did that live together on the Google Doc. And then we really liked how it turned out. So we spent the next couple class times honing and revising and tightening and, and then reorganizing. And then we pitched it to a, a website called the SA Daily. And I showed them the whole process of pitching it. And the editor there said, yeah, we love this. Let's do it. And my students said, why? We're going to get published. And then, and then a few weeks later, we got published. So that was a, a great experience where we started with just having read something, responding to it from our own experiences together. And I think that's the really important part. It was, it was, it was collaborative from the get-go. And then to see it get polished and published was, you know, again, it's just showing this like this, this full circle of different of, of all the different things we do as as humanities thinkers and writers and and scholars. How does that work in terms of when you try to get it published and it's such a large amount of people that are were part of the writing do you have a process you go through of whose names get used? Or is it one of those things that just is too many names to list? Or how, how has that worked practically? Well, I often tell, I often remind my students that if you, if you do a science paper with one of my science colleagues, you will be listed right there. You, you, you know, the, the professor will often be the first author. And then, and then there'll be a list of students or student assistants. And this isn't all that different. And that's helpful for them to see that, oh, this is actually not a completely crazy way of of publishing or writing, but it, but it's in fact somewhat similar to what other disciplines do. So I always insist that my students are you know listed and we, and everyone gets equal credit for it, even if even if sometimes 
I mean, even I've, people do different kinds of work, different styles of work. You know, for some student, it, for some students, it might be about going in and doing that fine tuning editing because that student's really good at that. And maybe they didn't produce as many words as some other students, but they're really good at going in and making precision changes. That's fine. I mean, and that's, I guess, another lesson for them is we all have different roles and we all find our different skills and things we're good at with respect to writing. We're not all, and I get, that's also why I strayed away from, or, or really just hard swerved away from assigning really standardized papers because I really want my students instead of all writing the same thing and getting graded on the same thing, I want them to find their different skills and, and, and what they're good at in terms of writing and editing. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I don't do this very often, but I actually would like to recommend an episode of Dave, my husband's podcast, which is called Coaching for Leaders. And specifically, it's an interview he did with someone named Jody Ann Bure. And the episode title is called End Imposter Syndrome in Your Organization. And this is such a common thing for so many of us to feel imposter syndrome. And it reminds me of a conversation I had way back when about grit. And that, you know, if you would just buck up and get yourself some grit, then you could break through all these systemic things that have been actually designed to hold you back. And, and so it's the same idea in terms of imposter syndrome. By the way, I'm not going to do her words justice. Please forgive me for not being able to encapsulate this very well. I do hope people will go and listen. But it's the idea of rather than putting all the weight on ourselves, like if we could just stop feeling this way, then everything would be fine. And I'm just going to read a couple of the points that came out of that conversation Dave had with her, that we tend to address the symptoms of imposter syndrome, but not the source, which again, some more of those systemic challenges. Those who experience imposter syndrome often feel like it's a death by a thousand paper cuts. And I thought, that was a really telling analogy. And then she talks a little bit about the ways in which leaders can help to address the issue of imposter syndrome instead of putting it back on the people that are experiencing these feelings. So it's a really good episode, lots to think about. And again, I do think it's a, it actually goes back to earlier when we were talking about this, Chris, is that thinking about things in individualistic terms, this is somehow the person's fault, how they're experiencing it versus um, more of a, a systemic challenge. So that's my recommendation for today. And I know you have a couple of things to recommend as well. Yeah, it sounds like I should listen to that podcast. I, I have definitely told my students in probably every class that I've had imposter syndrome every day of my career. But I think even even in, in admitting that, it's it's, I hope, doing some of that work that you're talking about where you're demystifying that feeling so that then you can actually just, well, let's do the work. Let's, 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 let's move through the imposter syndrome and actually just do the work together. And, and then we'll, we'll sort of maybe not feel like that quite as bad. So thank you for that. So I have, I have two, I was really wrestling with this decision. The one quick thing I want to recommend is the, the newest Marvel show called Hawkeye, um, which pairs Jeremy Renner's Clint Barton with Haley Steinfeld's Kate Bishop, who's a college-age archer who looks up to Clint Barton's Hawkeye, the, 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 an Avenger. But the dynamic between them has been so much fun for me to watch. I mean, it's a very amusing show, and it ties into all the other Marvel shows and, and movies, although I, I think you could watch it without having seen any of it, and it would be entertaining. But it, it, specifically because the dynamic between 
the, the college age Kate Bishop and the, uh, you know, very weary Gen Xer Hawkeye is fascinating to see as I feel myself playing out this, a similar dynamic in the classrooms so much where it, I have the, I, my students are so smart and they, they amaze me and surprise me and, and impress me. And yet it, they're also dealing with stuff that is exhausting for me to even think about dealing with as, as a college student. And so the, the back and forth between the two characters and in, in the two main characters in Hawkeye has been weirdly illuminating for me as I think about the dynamic between me and, and, and a lot of my students these days. So that's one recommendation, Hawkeye. And then the other recommendation is, I mentioned it earlier, Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, which I taught in my ecological thought honors seminar this past semester. And I, I didn't know if it was maybe too much. It's written by an artist and it's really about how to use this, this notion of doing nothing as a kind of a form of resistance. And it, it's not really a self-help book, but it, it has a lot of strong takeaways that can be uh, activated. And to see my students latch on to that book was really uh, exciting and, and inspiring. And so I wanted to mention that book. It's a couple years old now, but I but came out right before the pandemic. And so it, it I think it kind of missed some people's radar. Yeah, that timing was fascinating on, on that book for sure. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you you actually already answered the question I was going to ask about Hawkeye. I've I've been intrigued by some of the Marvel shows, but I always get this sense that I can't just step in any old place. So it's nice to know that someone like me who hasn't engaged too much with that universe of characters and plots that that it would still I'd still be okay and be able to hang oh, on. I hadn't seen any of them, in fact, except maybe the first Iron Man ages ago, but I hadn't seen any of them. And one time last winter, my my children, we were, you know, bored one afternoon, all everyone home in quarantine and WandaVision had just come out and we were sort of like, well, let's try this. And we started watching it. We had no idea what we were watching it, but we loved it. And, and we just, we watched every episode. And then by the end we were like, Hey, I think there's this whole other thing we need to go back and watch. And so we, then we spent the next couple of months catching up on the whole Marvel comic universe. And it was really fun to do together, but it, it was, so I had that experience with WandaVision and now I'm watching Hawkeye having seen everything else. So yeah. Oh, I'm glad to know that because WandaVision is one of those I heard from so many people that it was confusing at first. And I thought, well, my brain just these days, it doesn't need any more confusion. Right. Than it already has. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be able to keep up with this, but that's good to know about that show as well, that you could step into it as well. So I, I remember yeah. there's been something about whatever the premise was that the first thing was sort of a shock to people who were really familiar with the Marvel universe. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for both for the gift that is your book. Thank you for the gift of your work. I have just been delighted getting to know you through your writing in, in these past, I guess it's been a month or so, and I'm just great, grateful to be connected with you. And thank you for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me, and, and I'm really delighted to know about the podcast, and thank you for reading the book. Thanks once again to Christopher Shayberg for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to see the show notes, you can check them out at teachinginhighered.com slash 398. You also can head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe if you'd like to receive those show notes in your email box every week, the most recent episode as well as some other recommendations that don't get shared on the podcast episodes, 
some quotable words and other resources. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And thanks so much for listening and being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. I'll see you next time.